0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 9th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Good to see you guys this morning. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. and We truly believe more than just with our words, but even with our architecture that light has conquered darkness, right? What an amazing reality on Easter Sunday morning. You would have think we planned it like that, but we really didn't. Uh, but the first kind of phase of what's happening here is, is, is taking shape. So uh, what a Sunday to be able to see out and the weather just being beautiful and have the light in here together. It's, it's awesome. So happy Easter. Uh, we are going to take some time this Easter Sunday morning in particular to consider together how Easter Sunday really how the resurrection of Jesus, how Easter Sunday changes every Sunday. And not just how it changes every Sunday, but how the resurrection of Jesus changes every day. Let me pray and then we're going to jump in together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do that. Which only you could do, uh, your Holy Spirit this morning, together with your Word, you would give us light, light to see your Son, light to see your glory in your Son. We ask that you would do this in His good name. Amen. Now, for all of you here this morning who who might be YouTubers, I don't know if that's even a word. So forgive me if it's not a word. Um, I'm old, it's not my thing, but if you're YouTubers, and I don't even know what that means, maybe you like to make videos, would you believe me if I actually told you that it was possible for you to be able to gather over 72 million views and 2.5 million followers in less than 60 days? It's possible because it was actually done. In 2020, John Krasinski broke the internet with nine episodes of what he called, Some Good News. It was a YouTube internet show dedicated entirely to feel good stories. Because I don't know if you remember what the news cycle was like in 2020. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of feel good out there, right? But he was, he was scratching at something that all of us were hungry for, all of us were craving, all of us were longing for. He was scratching at something that Charles Taylor called the malaise of modernity. You know what malaise is? A malaise is just a general feeling of discomfort or uneasiness that you can't quite exactly put your finger on the source of. Taylor said that we were living in the malaise of modernity. He goes on to describe that time, in particular in 2020 and 2021, as a drift. That all of us drifted among the various allurements of social media, entertainment, culture, consumerism, We had nothing to look forward to except the next Netflix binge. And the pandemic has only heightened this this existential, this larger, bigger picture, this existential crisis and reality. And he said vacuum in our lives. We experience life as shallow and insubstantial or fragile and precarious. You remember that? We vacillate between boredom and anxiety. We want our lives to be high stakes. We want our actions to have weight, import, significance. But it's hard to achieve this sense of mattering through self-talk. And yet, self-talk is the only tool our therapeutic culture gives us. Just stare into the mirror and try to talk your way into significance convince yourself that you matter. Unsurprisingly, he said, the vast majority of us find this hard to do. And so we drift, caught up in the current of the malaise, not quite being able to put our finger on what the source of it all really is. Well, 400 plus years earlier, In the 1600s, there was a mathematical genius born in France named Blaise Pascal. And in the 1600s, Pascal actually put his finger on the source of what Charles Taylor would call in our day, this malaise that we find ourselves in. Pascal said that all of us, every single one of us, is born with a God-sized hole in our soul. Pascal described it this way. It's a terrifying, bottomless abyss opening up inside of us which will do anything to fill. It won't remain empty. We'll try to fill it with anything around us. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is just the empty print or trace This we try in vain to fill with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there that help we can't find in those things that are there. And though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, it can only be filled by God himself. Each of us has this abyss, this hole, this vacuum that leaves this ache An ache we all try to fill. An ache, whether we can actually put our finger on it or not, exists. An ache and a longing to be at peace with the one who made us. An ache and a longing for someone truly dependable. Someone truly trustworthy. Someone we can actually count on and lean everything into without fear that they're going to fail us. This ache and longing for reality. A truth that our lives can be built upon. We all have this ache and longing for our lives to really matter. To not come to the end of our days and feel like we somehow wasted it. Turn on the news in 2020 or... 2023, And we don't find hope, we find despair, because underneath it all, we're just being reminded that all the things we try to fill that longing, that that void, that vacuum with, all the ways we try to fix that ache are are only letting us down. People we look to, groups we look to, things we look to, they're they're only letting us down. And so uh, a daily dose of some good news something that feels good, it it hits the spot for a moment. It it, it pacified for just a moment the malaise. But then even after nine shows, even Jim Halpert let us down. He sold some good news to CBS, never to be seen again. And so we're still desperate, truly desperate for good news. Lasting, life-altering news. Not soft news, feel-good information, but real, solid news. Friends, that's the very thing that God provides for us this Easter Sunday morning in His Word. If you've, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of First Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. If you open up the Bible in front of you to the middle and begin to head right, You'll land there pretty quickly. 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 15. If you're flipping through it and you find 1 Corinthians in the title, the chapters are the numbers that are in bold and are larger. We're going to be in chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. This is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, has to say, not only to the church in Corinth who received this letter, but to us even today. Verse one, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. All right, let's stop right there. So we're going to get farther, I promise. But there are two very important pieces of information in this sentence. In fact, for those who would have read this or heard it read, there were two things that they would have understand, that give context and shape and weight to everything that Paul was about to say two things that I think today we become so familiar with that we miss the weight of and the first is this gospel that Paul is talking about gospel and if you've been with us for any amount of time you probably heard one of us talk about this before but gospel is a word that literally means good news and here's the thing it's not a church word it wasn't a religious word In Paul's day, it was a political word. Gospel was the good news usually of life-altering historical events and reality. When one kingdom or one empire would conquer one land or another, they would proclaim the gospel of said emperor or king. A new ruler is here. This is what life under his rule would look like. This is what the obligation to the new empire or kingdom looks like. That news was called gospel. It wasn't um, advice. It wasn't motivation. It was news. First and foremost, the gospel is news. Now it's a churchy word. We, we use it for all kinds of things. We're gospel this, gospel that, everything. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, except that we miss the weight of the reality of what's actually being said. First and foremost, the gospel is news before it's a, a way of seeing the larger world and how we live in it. It's not a, a set of advice or, or practical instructions, Advice you you can agree with or disagree with, right? But news, historical reality, you either have to believe or not believe. Either way, it doesn't change reality. It still is. The gospel, good news, is about something that happened. Historical reality. Reality. It's hard news, not soft news of feel good and motivation. It's hard news news of world changing, life altering events. So, Paul says this news, this gospel that he preached, and it's important to understand. What would have been heard and understood by the people who read it? Because again, like gospel, even preached is something that we carry our own connotations with. Preaching is what we understand me to be doing right now. So when I read this, I even think about Paul standing up in lecture halls and in rooms to opening up the Old Testament and preaching, right? Understanding and teaching how to understand the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is. That's not what he's talking about. There were a couple of different ways to talk about that in Paul's day. There was language for that kind of teaching, which resembled what the philosophers would do when they'd come to town. They would gather an audience, they would stand in an assembly, and they would then wax philosophical about their view of the world and and how we ought to live and what it looked like. There were words for that. Paul doesn't use those words. Paul uses very different words. The words that Paul used here meant to herald. To preach was to proclaim. A preacher was a herald of news. Think about in American history, Paul Revere, riding into town, proclaiming the news of what had happened, the life-altering events and reality of it. Some of you might be familiar with the historical story of Pheidippides. Maybe I said that right or wrong. You don't know, neither do I, so it all works. You ever get in one of those situations, just say it with confidence, right? But he's the one that history tells us ran from the Battle of Marathon to Athens to announce to the assembly that the Persians had been defeated. He announced that we've won, we've won, there's victory. Just so you know, the distance there from the battle to Athens was 26.2 miles. Hence, that's why some of you run marathons. Preachers were heralds of news. Life-altering, earth-altering realities. No one ran 26.2 miles from Athens to places like Marathon to announce that a new philosopher has five new ways for you to deal with your anxiety. That's not gospel, right? No, you heralded, you preached, you proclaimed world-changing events. So the people in Corinth would have understood as the letters being read that this gospel is news first. Paul has heralded to them life-shifting, world-shifting reality. That's what he's saying about himself. I'm a herald. And this news that I have proclaimed to you is literally changing everything. You know, every other major religion and philosophy in the world majors on here's how you can live better. Similar to the teaching that he could have talked about from the philosophers in his day. Christianity actually proclaims that something has happened in history. Something really happened, and you can't ignore it. Something happened that changes everything. Something really happened, and as a result of it, the world is now different in the present and will be different in the future. So let's listen to him again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The news that I preached, heralded, proclaimed to you, which you received and on which you stand. You've set the foundation of your life upon this news, upon this historical reality, upon what I have declared, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed it in vain. And here is the news that Paul proclaimed. He's going to summarize it for them right here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the first thing that he reminds them of and summarizes for them is that the good news, the gospel, is about Jesus. It's centered on Jesus. It's not news about a bland, edgeless God. Just a theism about a God that did something. It's about Jesus and what he's done. And Paul said he died in our place for our sins. This news is not a proclamation or a declaration of some death that occurred somewhere. It's not just an obituary or a death notice. No, there's something weighty about this thing. He died for our sins. There's an eternal, personal, theological weight to this death. And he really was dead. Buried. Contrary to what you might have learned in class, he didn't faint. He didn't swoon. He wasn't just dehydrated and lost a lot of blood and electrolytes and they got confused. He didn't pull a David Copperfield and disappear. He really died. He was really put in a tomb. And then Paul says he really rose from that tomb three days later. This news of something that has truly happened, that has life-altering, world-shaping consequences, is anything but mundane. It's anything but boring. Paul says it's news about a real man who literally died of violent and gruesome public death. People watched it. People saw it. People heard it. People were there. And then three days later, he wasn't in the tomb anymore. Instead, Paul goes on to say in verse 5, he appeared first to Cephas and then the 12, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Paul's saying if you want to go find him, you can talk to him. Though some have fallen asleep. They didn't take a nap. That's Bible way of saying that they've died, right? So some who saw him when he rose have now passed. But then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and last of all as one untimely born, He appeared also to me. So lots of eyes saw him. Lots of eyes saw him die this crucified, violent death. Eyes saw him be put in a tomb. Lots of eyes saw him on the other side of that tomb. Some so wrapped up in who they saw that they will suffer violent, gruesome deaths rather than to recant what they believed about him. Paul says this is good news. This is gospel. It really happened according, he says, to the scriptures. It wasn't random. It wasn't happenstance. It was part of God's larger story. It was part of God's loving design. It's part of God's story of reality. When Paul says it's all happened according to the Scriptures, he's thinking first and foremost about what you and I know as the Old Testament, and God had revealed his plan to his people. We know from the very beginning of the story, I'll just give you a short summation of what he's saying. We know as we open up the story all the way back at the beginning that we're not just lucky mud, random products of time and chance. Though according to God and his word, we're image bearers created in love. To live under his rule in peace and joy in his kingdom. That's how he created us and what he created us for. But we know the story according to the scriptures. Tragically, we chose to listen to the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of the creator. And we listened to the lie, a lie about who God is. And we believed a lie about ourselves that we were capable of deciding for ourselves the difference between good and evil. And the result, we know from the scriptures, from the story, the result was we didn't get the freedom. We didn't get all that the serpent promised us. Rather, we got imprisonment to self-worship. We get the consequence of death. From that moment, we know from the scriptures in the story that sin has infected every aspect of God's creation from that moment forward, And every attempt that we've ever made to try to put it all back or make it right, every attempt we've we've ever had to try to fix ourselves and fix the world around us has ultimately failed. Like Humpty Dumpty off the wall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put it back. No matter how hard we tried, we can't fix ourselves and we couldn't fix the world around us. But we know from the story, according to the scriptures, that in spite of our rebellion, God never stopped loving his creation. And the scriptures tell the story of his steadfast love and faithfulness that culminated in the news of him sending his own son, Jesus, to die a death he did not deserve, but to die a death that we deserved for our sin. He died in our place for our sin and then rose three days later, defeating death itself. And now this king... This king invites us into life with him through faith in him. He welcomes us back. Paul says, this is reality. This is the news. This is the gospel. This is the good news that I herald and proclaim. It's what I herald and proclaim everywhere I go. Right? If all of this is true, if it really happened... Paul would say that there is hope for the future. There is forgiveness for you right now. There is restoration to a relationship that your sin has destroyed between you and God. There is the very spirit of God that will take up residence into your life and change you. In other words, if the historical events happened, if it's really news, if it really happened, and everything about life has changed. Every day has to be seen differently. So look back, listen to him again, verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So you've got to understand what Paul's getting after now, now that he's kind of bringing everybody together. In Corinth, Corinth was born out of the history of the Greek empire. And so Corinth was, was riddled through in its history with a Greek view of the world. And in the Greek view of the world, they believed that the soul was immortal, but the body was not. The physical self, the physical world was not immortal. The soul was. And there were many in this church in Corinth who continued to believe that. They were denying the resurrection of the body, the immortality of the body. And Paul's saying that. You've got to understand the implications of what you're believing. And while you and I may not be born out of a worldview like they were in Corinth, and we may not consciously and willingly, willfully say that we don't believe that the body is immortal, that there is a resurrection, we often live like we actually do. Our lives don't look much different than theirs did, who openly didn't believe it. So Paul's saying you've got to understand the implications of what you're thinking, of what you're saying, of what you're believing. Listen to him, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Right? So everything about Jesus is just a fable. Period. If Christ has not been raised, verse 14, our preaching, proclaiming is empty, is in vain, and your faith is in vain. That's what vain means. Empty, hollow, weightless. Our preaching is empty. It's it's hollow. Your confidence in that doesn't get you anything. It's weightless. Verse 15, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true, the dead aren't raised. At best, we're false witnesses, liars. For if the dead are not raised, verse 16, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen, not only is your faith futile, which he just talked about, but you're still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, you're still in your sins, which means now it is up to you to figure out how to make it all right, how to fix what's gone wrong in you. It's on you to try to make a way. Verse 18, if he has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep already, dying, in Christ have perished. So those who actually believe that Jesus really was the Messiah, but they've already died, Paul says, if he really didn't rise from the dead, they've perished. Perished meaning the weight of the judgment or the wrath of God is still on them. They still face the judgment of God if Jesus did not get out of that tomb. And then verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, because he didn't rise from the dead, we're of all people most to be pitied. Our lives are to be pitied. You should feel sorry for us. Later, Paul's going to say in this same chapter, in verse 30, he's going to, have to describe a little bit of what this life looks like, even for him, when he says, why are we in danger every hour? Every hour, I'm in danger for Jesus. Every hour, I'm getting pushed back because of Jesus. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, the life that I live, Paul says, is of the most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, living for Jesus, obeying Jesus, denying yourself to follow Jesus, if there is no resurrection, that's stupid. You should feel sorry for us. It's delusional. So honest. I love the Bible. The Bible is so honest. If you've never read it, it is the most honest thing you will actually ever read. It's so honest. But what Paul's about to say is what makes Easter so special. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the news. Something happened. Something really happened that changes everything. He has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's a timely metaphor, the beginning of spring. You can look out our, our new windows and see buds and blossoms on trees. They would have understood the metaphor of the first fruits, so those early buds on the crops that you planted that signal to you what's coming. Do you know what's coming? Harvest. Farmer would see the first fruits, the buds, the beginnings of what had been planted, and he would know that a harvest is actually on its way. Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit or the sign of what is coming, what is certain for us who believe. See, Easter isn't just about Jesus' resurrection. Easter is also about his resurrection being our resurrection. It's about our hope as well. One day in the future, what happened to Jesus will happen to all of his followers. But in the meantime, until that day in which he returns and we rise physically to be with him, the reality of the news, the gospel, the good news changes everything. All that Paul said would be true if he was not raised, gets flipped on his head. To be true for us. Listen, just let's flip them on their head. Listen. Verse 17, Paul said, if he was not raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, what? We're not still in our sins. We've been forgiven. Listen, whether people can put their finger on it exactly or not, Pascal helped out. But in this malaise and in this ache in the soul, everyone has this deep longing to be received, to be accepted, to not be alienated by their creator. The reality of it is, if God still held our sins against us, of which there are multitude then there would be no hope for any of us from God. See, by his death, Jesus paid the penalty, the price for our sins, and he purchased for us justification, right standing, acquittal with God, forgiveness. His death was the basis of our forgiveness. In his body, on the cross, He paid the debt that you and I owed for our sins. This is why Paul says, if he had not been raised, we would still be in our sins. If he did not rise from the dead, if he did not come out of that tomb, if he was still dead in that tomb, that meant that his death in our place for our sins was not sufficient. His blood spilled and his body broken wasn't enough. We're not rescued from our sins. But you see, the resurrection is proof that his sacrifice, his death, was sufficient to cover the sins. those who believe? Paul puts it this way to the church in Rome. He, Jesus, was handed over to death on account of our transgression, our sin, and he was raised on account of our justification. He was raised as a demonstration, as a vindication of his sacrifice, that it was sufficient. And now for all who are in him, who believe in him, we're forgiven. We're no longer in our sins. But not only that, verse 14, he said if Christ wasn't raised, right, our faith is weightless, it's empty. Sorry, I lost my mic there. But because Christ was raised, it's not hollow. It is on solid ground, which means that we can trust Jesus with all that we are. That longing that we all have for someone that we can truly trust, that we can really depend on. For someone who, who's not going to in the end let us down who's not going to change on us that longing is found and met in Jesus it's what we were made for in the garden we, we were all created to trust God for everything and that longing is, is still there in every human heart and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, him coming out of that tomb demonstrates not only his love towards us, but his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. In him, we have the one that we can depend on. Which means, in verse 15, that what we actually proclaim, what we actually herald, is true. It's true. It's not hollow. I mean, it's a whole sermon for another time, but if there's anything that we ache for today, it's truth. Certainty on which we can build our lives. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his resurrection from the dead vindicates the claim he makes about himself. And then in verse 19, what Paul said is what's caught my attention for the last week if in christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied if he really didn't rise from the dead living your life to deny yourself to follow jesus to take up your cross daily Put to death every day the desires, the sinful desires of your heart that want to make the world around you all about you. To live that way would be delusional. It'd be foolish. But he's risen. And not only has he risen, he reigns as king for all of eternity, now and forever. That changes everything. Now, all of the sacrifice, all of the denial, all of the repentance, all of the love, all of the service, all of the obedience is far from pitiable. It's just the opposite. It's actually compelling. Dare I say it's actually enviable. See, we all have this longing to not come to the end of our days and find out that we wasted it that they were empty, that they were hollow. I think we would all say, push come to shove, we, we want a life that really matters. I think we would consciously, if someone put a piece of paper in front of us, say, I do not want a life solely based on trying to satisfy and enhance myself. Yet if you've been with us the last six weeks or so leading up to Easter, you know that we have this battle going on inside of us. We have this tension at work in us. Pascal, the same one who helped us put our, our finger on this hole that we're trying to fill in our soul, he had this thing in his pen same book, that is called Pascal's Wager. You ever learned about Pascal's Wager in school? You ever heard about it in some of your classes? Yeah. Pascal's Wager, if I could sum it up, the best that I could summarize a 17th century French mathematician genius, is basically... Now, the odds are better for you if you live your life on this earth as a Christian and then in death come to find out that Christianity was a lie because you won't have lost much. In this life on this earth, you would have lived a life of kindness and love and sacrifice. But if you live your life on this earth as one who does not believe in Jesus and in death you come to find out that it was true, You've actually lost everything. And you've lost it for all of eternity. So Pascal's wager is about just playing the odds, right? Well, Paul would say, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, if the Christian life was really just about being nice and kind and moral and loving, then sure, he's on to something. But that's not what it is. Jesus' invitation to life with him and his kingdom is an invitation to lay down your life. To deny yourself. It's a life of sacrifice and risk-taking obedience to him to follow him. It's a life about the expansion and the proclamation of this good news and embracing whatever hardship or difficulty or suffering comes with it. It's a life that we see in the Apostle Paul that encompasses at times going to hard places amongst hard people. A life of sacrificing particular comforts and taking risks that only makes sense if the news about Jesus is true. A life that only makes sense if he's really risen from the dead. Paul says if the dead aren't raised, then a life lived for Jesus and not ourselves makes us a fool. what kept Paul going what kept him going dying daily as he would talk about what kept him sacrificing what kept him risking what kept him loving what kept him proclaiming what kept the early church who we know not only from the stories of the letters and the scriptures but from the stories of history who weren't amongst the elite in their day the church was not born amongst the upper class of its day it was born amongst those overlooked by the world around them the poor and the marginalized, that's where the church took root. What kept them in their poverty and marginalization, continuing to sacrifice and generosity and love for one another, even those who weren't of them? But the Roman Empire would look at them and go, they even take care of our people. What would cause them to continue to go to to the lion's den singing songs about Jesus. What would cause them to continue to risk in love for one another? What causes this and compels this? Well, Paul says it comes from a deep confidence in the resurrection. In the good news. That something happened. And what happened changes everything. And he's reminding the church then, as much as God through Paul is reminding the church now that this same confidence is to be ours. That's why Paul will end this part of his letter in verse 58 saying this be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Come what may, whatever it costs, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's what we all want to know. But in the end, it's not empty. It wasn't hollow. The risk, the sacrifice, the obedience, the self-denial, the cross-carrying, the risk of love and service, that it was really worth it. Paul says it is because of the resurrection. Friends, are we living our lives in such a way that they only make sense if Jesus has risen from the dead? Or do our lives look just like the rest of the world? Prioritizing the same things, the same comforts, the same securities as the world. With the only difference being that we believe when our days are numbered, we're going to end up in eternity with Jesus. Is that the only difference? Friends, without a true and living hope for a resurrection, an everlasting joy in Jesus. Every single last one of us will tend to treat this life in this world as a place that we have to squeeze as much pleasure and joy out of. To risk as little of it as possible. Because we're not sure there's anything else. We'll keep trying to fill that ache. That God-shaped hole with things we think will satisfy. Paul says, if he did not rise from the grave, pity me. Pity the way I'm living. Pity the risks I'm taking. Pity the sacrifices I'm making. The suffering I'm enduring. Feel sorry for me if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But, and I love the way John Piper put it, if Christ is raised and if trusting him means that I will be raised with him, then this life is just a brief prelude to an eternal life with Jesus and ever-increasing joy with him. If that's true, Then Paul is no fool. His life and our life of risk taking, sacrificial love is not to be pitied. Pity not those who will rise with Jesus. When you know that Jesus is risen from the dead, then no matter where he leads you, and no matter what it costs, no matter what sacrifices are there, risk taking obedience to Jesus is the most enviable life in the world. It's not empty, it's not vain. Your life will not be in vain when you do what the risen Christ says to do. It will count. In fact, whatever the risen Christ says to do is the only thing that will count. Death doesn't get the last word. Because of the good news, because he rose, we know that we will live with him the way he lives. That those who belong to Jesus will be raised with him in everlasting life and joy. So, no matter where he leads, what it costs, following him is worth it. It's not empty. And, and so, so, here it is. Here's, here it is, right? Only two things either Jesus died, end of story died, he was put in a tomb, and that's it. Which means you and I have to keep looking around for things that will fill the ache. We'll keep trying to figure out with all the king's men and all the king's horses how to put our own humpty dumpty lives back together again. We'll keep caught up in the current of the malaise. Anxious and empty, thirsting for some good news or Jesus died in our place for our sins and was raised to new life. It's either or. It's all or nothing. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then we have to throw off every other lifestyle and throw off every other view of the world to follow him. Everything that we previously thought about ourselves, About the world we live in, even about God, has to be reframed and rebuilt and re-energized by the resurrection. Prince Jesus invites us to life with Him, and we receive this invitation through repenting of our own efforts to try to satisfy ourselves by repenting of our own efforts to try to make ourselves right with Him try to satisfy that ache and that longing by turning from those things and believing with all that we are into the one who's truly trustworthy. We put this confidence on display in, in baptism. There's actually a class coming up about identifying with Jesus in baptism. Baptism is just a physical proclamation of the confidence of our heart as we go under the water dying with Jesus dying to our old story and our old attempts to fix ourselves and the world around us, going under the water, pausing for a minute, and then being raised up out of the water to a new life, a new identity, a new hope, a new potential, a new reality in Him. And then every day from that moment forward is you and I living out that story of life with Him, dying to sin, Living with him in the present with a hope for the future. You want to know more about it? You'll hear in a bit. There's a class coming up. We'd love to help you understand it. But there is good news news that changes everything about every day. So the question is, my friends do you believe in the risen Christ? Do you believe in the good news? Is he your savior, your king? Something really happened that changes everything. Do you believe it? We're going to give you a moment here to respond to God's word, or we're going to do it by allowing you some silence to just reflect, to consider God's word, to allow him to do work in your heart, How might you be responding to what he's doing? And then after a a moment to just consider his word, we're going to respond with our bodies. For those who have believed upon Jesus through repentance and confidence in him, you're going to be invited to come forward. And again, not in baptism, but in a different physical way, proclaim your confidence in Jesus, your belief in the news that something really happened that changes everything that he really did live the life you were created to live, that he really did die the death that you deserve to die for your sins, that he really was raised from the dead, defeating death and the sin in itself, and that he really is at the right hand of God the Father. We're going to proclaim our confidence in that by coming forward and receiving communion, taking the bread, remembering his body broken, dipping it in the cup, his blood spilled for our forgiveness, proclaiming our faith and hope in him. And then we're going to sing, we're going to celebrate, and we're going to be sent out from here as his people. So I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to invite you in a moment to just consider what God has said. And then as we come forward to receive communion, if you're here this morning and you would say that you were not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know how glad we are that you are with us. There's nothing more that any of us want for you than for you to see and to know and to taste the grace of God in Jesus. But what I'm going to ask of you is that when people begin to come forward to receive communion, that you just remain where you are and consider even what you heard and consider even what we're singing. I would not want for you to come forward out of some sense of pressure or obligation and make a proclamation about yourself that isn't true. We'd love to talk to you after the service, help you better understand who Jesus is and this good news and the difference that it makes. And so let's take a moment. I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to have a time to consider his word as we get ready to respond together. Heavenly Father, we we need you. Work of your Holy Spirit to give us eyes this morning to see Jesus. Ears this morning to hear the good news. He is alive. He is reigning. He is loving And we need you this morning by your spirit to give us a heart of confidence and of faith in this news so that our lives begin to increasingly reflect the reality of our hope. We ask this morning you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.